Welcome to Inside the Rope with David Clark, the podcast where we interview some of the leading minds in wealth management. In this episode of Inside the Rope, we speak with Dr. John Cummins, Medical Director and Specialist Physician at the Executive Medicine Centre, where John provides preventative medical advice to successful people and executives. I think you will agree that being wealthy is more than just the dollars and cents, and paying attention to health and well-being is vitally important. I found John to be a great source of information and advice to my clients over the eight years that I've been dealing with him. I hope you enjoy this episode. Dr. John Cummins, welcome to Inside the Rope. Perhaps you could start off by giving us a bit of your background, please. Uh, I'm a a general physician. So my background is I finished the medical training back in 1984. And uh, my journey to becoming a preventative medicine doctor um, started with passing the physician's training exam, which is a, a very difficult exam. And generally when people think of physicians, they think of cardiologists, neurologists, endocrinologists, etc. I struggled at first to find what my box was because I always had an interest in prevention, but the general medical model doesn't really have a box for prevention in a specialty field. I spent some time in the States, so I did a fellowship in, in, uh, in adolescent medicine, where I was exposed to a lot of mental health training, but also did a master's in public health as I'd thought at that time, well, adolescence is a good way to get into prevention. And um, I, I practiced in that field for a while, then went on to back to adult medicine, uh, was looking after typical chronic illnesses, uh, and then took over the, the practice of executive medicine probably about 13 years ago, and we've developed the model till then, which is highly successful. So, John, we are in this podcast are really addressing... Uh, wealth management issues and for some people I think addressing and speaking to a medical doctor might be a little unusual and normally analyzing uh, numbers figures and investments um, in what a lot of people see as traditional wealth and I guess you know I think you would probably agree that there's a broader definition of wealth to be had and you know for instance it seems reasonably obvious the purpose of wealth in many cases is fun and enjoyment and if you're not fit and healthy it seems hard to uh, be, be enjoying a lot of uh, the processes um, or the outcomes of your success. Mm. So g- give me um, a, a little bit of your experience of how you see successful people and successful executives um, m- you know, managing their health. Great question. So our practice, um, the, the typical demographic in our practice would be a uh, a male in his 50s that is a high income earner. Uh, having said that, we, we, we do see women and we want to see more women. The, the, when I, so my, my, my history and any doctor's history is that you tend to look at a medical model of illness. So the medical model is when you have a symptom, generally you go to a doctor. Uh, as I mentioned before, I was interested in prevention. And when I started this practice um, uh, approximately 13 years ago, uh, there was a, a, a very favorable shock that I had because I started looking at really 
uh, wealthy people and they would come to me for a health check and it didn't take long for me to realize that these people think differently so the high net worth individuals I see that that I think have wealth in multiple domains and I would call those domains wellness domains uh, they, they, they are healthy in their relationships they're healthy in their physical health they uh, often have a, a high integration within their community and they're clearly healthy and successful in their financial and and uh, and, and career uh, aspects as well. Do you, do you think there's a correlation to their happiness with those things? I look I, I, I absolutely um, for example I would say and I, I don't know for sure but I would say uh, with a high degree of certainty that for example the divorce rate with our clients is much much lower. And, and getting back to the happiness, um, I've got to know my clients for 13 years now. Uh, fundamentally, they really enjoy life. And, and I think the reason why they are so successful in multiple domains is that they, they are very good at strategic thinking. They realize uh, a little bit like the Pareto principle of 80-20 rule, that if you ignore key things by not doing daily habits, they can have a massive ripple effect down the track. So for example, they, they think strategically about their finances, they pay attention to their, their primary relationships, and they're really diligent with their health. Because if you take your eye off the ball with your daily habits or weekly habits around these domains, you will pay the price down the track. And so they're, they're a different beast. They just think differently and in a very healthy way. John, I've heard you talk about the three the three pillars of longevity, mm. what are they? Can you explain those to our listeners? Absolutely. Well, when, when I started down the path of looking at preventative medicine, um, it stuns me that doctors, including medical specialists, often don't understand the power of prevention. For example, uh, if you look at what will kill us, uh, probably 40% of us will die from what I call a plumbing problem. So it's a blocked artery, a heart attack or stroke. 60% of men will not get a symptom. They'll just have the event and either survive or be in hospital and, and, or a nursing home. And 50% are women. Now, one of the pillars of health uh, for preventing cardiovascular outcome is, is, uh, is, is diet. The Mediterranean diet will reduce risk of heart attack and stroke by 30%. That's as powerful as medication. I've spoken about the 40% of things that will kill us being plumbing problems. The other 30% will be a cancer. And if you think about um, what sort of cancers, lung cancer, which is 95% smoking, bowel cancer, which is a Western diet-related cancer predominantly, prostate, breast cancer with, with its links to obesity and alcohol, lymphoma and melanoma, the latter being sunlight. So 40% of cancers are preventable from a lifestyle perspective. And then we've covered 40% of death being a plumbing problem, 30% being a cancer, which is 70%. The other 30% is everything else, which could be kidney disease, all sorts of things. Now, the three pillars of health with a, a massive reduction in, 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 in these events uh, nutrition, which is predominantly a Mediterranean diet, our exercise and movement, because exercise is so protective and so predictive of longevity. And the final thing would be stress management. How do you manage stress? So I would say that if, if when we teach people how to eat a Mediterranean way, how to move and, and ideally how to manage stress and become more mentally resilient, you have a fantastic chance of getting to 100 in great shape. And we're really interested. People say, well, look, I don't want to get to 100. That's, that's, that's fine. Um, but when you study populations around the world like the Sardinians, the, the Okinawans, the, the Seventh-day Adventists in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in California, 
um, a significant percentage of these populations that practice these lifestyle habits get to 100 but with the body of a 50 year old or 60 year old or 70 year old. So we, we want to mitigate that nine years of disability that the average Western person has before death. We, we want longevity with fantastic vitality. John, can we explore a little bit of those three pillars? Talk to us about diet, for instance. You know, what do you mean by a Mediterranean diet? Uh, look, fairly simple. Um, the Mediterranean diet, basically, uh, what you want to eat less of is processed food. For example, cakes, biscuits, sweets, um, restaurant foods, things like that. What you want to eat much more of would be uh, fish three or four times a week, especially oily fish like uh, um, mackerel and tuna. You want to eat a vast amount of planned food. So, for example, at lunchtime, you could have a salad. Uh, and fish for dinner, you'd have lots of vegetables and maybe another protein. Uh, you would want to eat nuts, you would want to eat seeds, you would want on a daily basis, you would want to, um, uh, in this particular trial they gave people up to a litre a week of uh, extra virgin olive oil. Um, you want to eat fruit uh, and, um, and other sorts of proteins could be uh, non-animal proteins such as tofu. Uh, and you, you'll also get proteins with nuts. Big thing was legumes. Australians don't eat legumes. So legumes being lentils, chickpeas and, and beans. And you can quite easily source in, in any city and probably any rural area um, a salad bar that will sell you a legume with lots of beans in it because the, the legumes have high protein but the fibre will drag down your cholesterol plus also protect you from bowel cancer. Alcohol intake was limited um, for a man to... Uh, um, 750 um, or seven standard sorry 14 standard drinks a week so what's a standard drink David most people think well look a wine um, a standard drink is 150 180 mils of wine well it's not it's about 100 mils of wine if you look at it it depends on the concentration of wine but if you look at a typical bottle of red or white wine a bottle and you have a look on the label it'll tell you the seven half standard drinks there in 750 mils so if a man can uh, up to uh, 14 standard drinks a week, for a woman it's halved, it's about seven standard drinks a week. So if you, if, if you follow that dietary regime, you will have a 30% risk reduction in, within a five year period of a heart attack or stroke, and a lot of it was stroke risk reduction, um, and that's very compelling evidence. And that's, that's what, what was very exciting about for me was to read this published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2013. The, that style of eating has been published in lots of medical documentations over the past 20-30 years, so it's not new, um, but it's highly reproducible. But to get into the New England Journal of Medicine, that is probably the best medical journal in the world. So for them to publish that, well, they were saying, you know, this is so compelling and so important. So that's what I would say from a dietary viewpoint. I, I, I think I was having a discussion at lunchtime today um, nutrition does not have to be complex at all and I, I think we make it way too complex if you follow mainly a plant-based diet you eat red meat probably two or three times a week but no more so red meat being especially trying to avoid things like processed red meat hams prosciutto salami um, so if you eat lean red meat and, and probably 100 150 grams in volume two or three times a week but the rest of your protein comes from uh, chicken breast fish turkey breast sort of white meats um, you will do really well. And, and why? What, what's the problem with red meat? Two, two things, it does tend to contribute to cholesterol raising, but also um, the cancer, uh, the, there's a National Cancer Research Institute in the state that it was quite a controversial publication about two or three years ago, but they quite clearly categorise red meat as a carcinogen. It will contribute to bowel cancer risk. 
Okay, so that's food. What about exercise? What do you yep. suggest so and what do you see as best practice? It, um, so with exercise, I, I think the main thing is do some. So what I mean by some, bare minimum would be 150 minutes a week where you're at least a little bit out of breath. So does that have to be five 30-minute sessions, um, you know, three 50-minute sessions? We don't know. Being a weekend warrior, as in not not as in worrying from anxiety, but but um, you know worrying in terms of uh, being a warrior, uh, has some protective effect as well. So I would keep that number 150 minutes a week in your mind. So that can be incidental activity, like like walking up a lot of stairs. That can be going for a run, a cycle, a a kayak. But that would be the bare minimum. Now we also look at exercise in different domains. So. For example, one is physical fitness, which we measure in our practice. So we put people on a treadmill. Not, not. It, it's a, it's an okay test for coronary artery disease, but we're really interested in looking at their fitness because we know that fitness is so protective. Um, so it, it, we, we think of aerobic where you're out of breath, but you've got to also remember, David, that that increasingly we are spending our time sitting at desks and if you look at people's posture sitting at desks their musculoskeletal system gets really hammered so i think the more that you've got a desk-based job probably the more exercise you've got to do to offset it but that could include things like i, I include as, as fitness things like um, cardiovascular fitness but also strength flexibility and balance would be other examples so if you can do a variety of exercise that's even better than doing a single exercise, a single exercise is absolutely better than doing none. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, you, you, I think all of us need to, and this is what successful people do, they actually make exercise a part of their life. It's a not negotiable part of their life. And I'll tell you a really interesting story. One of the, the, the fascinating parts of dealing with highly successful people is you get a lot of tips. But I, I met this anaesthetist last Monday, and 42-year-old anaesthetist at a major teaching hospital, five children at the age of 42, and he exercise. He often doesn't finish till 19 o'clock at night. He exercises six hours a week. I said, "How can you do that?" I mean, I'm constantly impressed with my patients, and he's smart, so he's very time efficient. What he'll do is he lives at um, uh, well, he lives at Hunters Hill, and he will either cycle to work, which is an 8k cycle. We'll catch the ferry to Balmain and run to work. So what he's doing is he's using up some of his commuting time as exercise time. And I said to him, look, I take my hat off to you. People say to me, I haven't got time to exercise. You've got five children, you're probably working 60 hours a week or so, 50 hours a week, and yet you still do it. And I think that, that and, and the other thing is I said to him, well, look, tell me about exercise, why do you do it? Uh, he said, it helps me cope. And it is one of the, the, the most powerful coping tools with stress management that that universally when people come into me stressed I say yeah got to exercise to, to, to manage it we, we, we forget David that we are mammals we are biological beings and biological beings beings are, are designed to to move and to eat natural foods primarily um, it's a little bit like I bought a car many years ago that had been sitting in the garage for nine months. The the car hadn't moved. Cars are designed to move. It cost me a fortune to get the car back on, onto roadworthiness again because the car hadn't moved. And and I, I would warn your listeners that if they don't eat generally natural foods like plant-based foods and nuts and seeds and olive oils and, and things like that, and if they don't move enough, you will not have, uh, you, you're decreasing your risk of longevity and vitality. Terrific. So Dr. John, 
tell me, um, you touch there on mental health. Yep. And it would seem, as a species, as humans, we're getting more and more complex and more yep. and more pressure and yep. more and more information and more yep. and more demands yep. um, and, and more and more successful. Yep. But happiness may not be correlated to that. And, and you know, the, the advent or the incidence of mental health issues seems to be growing exponentially. Tell us about what you're seeing, what you're experiencing, and, and how can people manage that? Yeah. So, again, the, the, we, we look after um, a lot of CBA, you know, senior executives, and we have had psychologists in-house in our practice on the premonition that there will be a need for them. But the, we, what, what's fascinating with our, our, um, uh, our, our wealth in successful clients is they don't often have significant mental health problems. Not they don't, they just don't often. So we, we did a report for CBA outlining how few in reality we actually see, and they were very surprised at that. Now, it may be that we're being selected against, only the fit and healthy come to see us because they're interested, I understand that. But I think that um, a lot of people, as I was saying, David, the, 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 the wealthy high net with people, um, I think they think differently and they prioritise and they make decisions differently. And I suspect that they're generally mentally a lot more resilient. And, and you know, I don't think our culture pays a lot of attention to mental toughness. Um, you can actually uh, improve it. There, there, there's clearly research that show that you can train people to be more mentally resilient. So the flip side of it is that, that uh, for example, uh, I was looking at a, I, I do a lot of work in the insurance industry and I do see people that are apparently wealthy and successful but they don't cope very well when things happen. So I was looking at a, a case where a man close to 50 um, uh, is off work because he's, he's not coping with a personal situation and it's a bit of a shame because had he addressed his resilience, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, I don't think he'd be in this position at the moment. So, I, stress management, really fascinating. I, I think um, it, it basically, th there, are, there are a couple of aspects to it. I will often ask my clients, um, what tools do you have to soothe yourself? And what I mean by that is that we all get challenged. If you're alive and you're breathing, got a pulse, you've got problems. That's, that's part of being alive. And I'm trying to ascertain when we get stressed and upset, A, a what tools do we have to calm ourselves down? And B, how do we prevent it from getting to that point anyways as much as we can? Exercise is, physical exercise is, um, um, is so pervasively good that, that, that almost everyone will say, look, I exercise. Um, that brings me to what type of exercise? There, there was a psychologist called Mikuleski that built a whole career on a concept called flow. And what he did was he, he got um, a whole lot of individuals from varying disciplines to wear pages and he would trigger the pages at various times and they would write down what they were doing and how they were feeling. And when people, uh, people reported they felt in flow in totally the present moment, so no stress that is by definition, when they were doing a task that was measurable, uh, challenging and required total con um, concentration. So, and a good example, the, he, he, these were surgeons, for example, that so say, when I'm operating, 
and there's lots of things happening this is critically important I'm in flow so I find that for me personally when I exercise and if I go for a run I still have a bit of a chattering mind there which is okay the exercise is still great for me but if you put me into a competitive situation where um, it's measurable it challenges me and it's actionable um, I often find that 15, 20, 30 minutes of this sort of situation, mentally, I, I've not thought of work or anything for 30 minutes. I feel like I've had a holiday. So, so number one is exercise in terms of what, what people uh, do to, to manage your stress. I'm a huge fan of getting to know your mind. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is actually meditation. Because when, I, I think in, in Western cultures, we tend to be a very anxious culture. Anxiety is part of the human condition. As a doctor, you see anxiety all the time. So what I think a big shortcoming of our culture is, is we don't, as individuals, don't actually pay any attention to our minds and our thinking. And we spend a lot of our lives in what I call la-la land. You're walking down the street and your head is with your conversation with your wife or your business deal or something like that. You, we, we are really present. So I'm a huge fan of um, uh, guiding people to uh, at least explore meditation where what you do is you sit and you spend that time just watching your thoughts. And all of a sudden you realize, I am not my thoughts. And then when crises happen and, and you develop this habit where the initial goal is, 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 to, is to find peace, um, you don't grasp onto the thought as much. And it's a fantastic tool of calming yourself down. But I think in day-to-day -day situations, not getting so hooked up in what's going on, which then drives your anxiety and sets you up for depression later on. And there's also, David, there's also basic stuff. Get enough sleep. Get some rest. You know, our, our, our society doesn't pay any attention to recovery time. Recovery is, is so important. The, um, I went to a talk in Adelaide last year uh, on one of the, um, I think it could have been the Adelaide Crows, it was a sports physician talking about it. And, and he was saying that they, the sports, um, the elite sports docs are really good because they measure everything. And he was saying that for their 20 to 25-year-olds or 18 to 23-year-old um, uh, kids who are playing high-level sport, um, the number of hours they need to sleep for maximal performance is nine hours. And a lot of people, you know, in business don't get nine hours of sleep. Is nine hours a magic number for everyone? I'm not sure. But if they don't get nine hours, they don't perform as well. If you do weights and you're trying to build muscle hypertrophy, the, 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 the increasing size in muscle does not happen through the weights. It happens in recovery. If you don't recover, you won't grow muscle. So I think it's not, 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 not drinking alcohol as much, getting plenty of rest, um, not smoking, because smoking drives the sympathetic nervous system with some basic habits just to keep your stress levels down. So John, in wrapping up, I think it would be a good example if you could talk us through what a typical week or you know the days look like for someone like yourself who's obviously running a busy practice, a successful practice. You look like you're in pretty good shape to me. I'd expect you're healthy. Um, tell me what a typical week looks for you in terms of these habits. How do you how do you manage to stick those together? Yeah, no, great because I, it's a great question, David. I I, I could not advise people to do something if I don't do it myself. So uh, the typical day for me starts with a fairly early morning rise, 5.36. I do my meditation uh, virtually every day. I then set a goal to uh, improve my mental thinking and attitude through the day. And, and the goal might be as simple as just watching my thoughts through the day. 
Um, I uh, tend to eat a fairly low carb, you know, but healthy Mediterranean diet as much as I can. Um, generally fairly successful with it. And then I would train varying from three hours to five hours a week. And the, the training that I've been doing the last four years is, um, it's, it's a thing called Krav Maga. And I'm, I'm not here to plug Krav Maga, but it's fascinating. It's an Israeli kind of self-defense. But what it puts you through is uh, aerobic conditioning, power, strength, flexibility, and a lot of mental resilience as well. So that, and, and, and because you're so in the present, because someone's trying to you know, punch your lights out or whatever they're trying to do, um, to me, it just ticks so many boxes of how to look after myself. I also get myself checked, David. I mean, I've had a CT of the coronary, so I get my colonoscopy done, I get my skin checked. So I, I outsource uh, everything from a physical examination, blood testing viewpoint that I would do for our clients because the model works. We, we, we have uh, our death rate is incredibly low and our pickup rate of very early disease is incredibly high. So I would do everything to me that I would espouse to everyone else. And um, I think the biggest thing that David is me is just watching my attitude and, and monitoring me, you know, to, as we go through life because I absolutely want to get to 95, 100, 100, 105 in great shape. Excellent. Dr. John Cummins, thanks for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, David. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.